listeners, this is Talking Frontiers. I'm your host, Riju Ray, Associate Professor of History at Jindal School of Journalism and Communications. In this podcast, we explore histories, ethnographies, and cultural articulations of spaces understood as frontiers, borderlands, fringes, and margins. In this series of episodes, we will have conversations, exchange ideas and stories by showcasing the rich scholarship and literature on the erstwhile northeastern frontier of British India. Geographically, this frontier included not only the seven states that make up northeast of India today, but also parts of Bangladesh and Myanmar. Uh, welcome to our second episode, Dialogues with History. We have Professor Dr. Dolly Kikon with us. Dr. Kikon is Associate Professor of Anthropology and Development Studies at University of Melbourne. In 2023, Professor Kikon is a visiting professor at the Macmillan Center of the South Asian Studies Council at Yale University. Professor, it is a pleasure and honor to have you on Talking Frontiers podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, your work traverses several important research questions ranging from gendered violence, affective labor, urbanization, militarization, ecology, and indigenous sovereignty. Although not strictly within the disciplinary bounds of history, your work is very deeply historical. Uh, for instance, the deeply embedded colonial forms of knowledge, political economy, and bordering practices are inflected in your work. Uh, your book, Living with Co Oil and Coal, Resource Politics and Militarization in Northeast India, examines the relationship between political economy, state violence, and various forms of community responses to resource extraction and, the govern and governance through militarization in the contemporary period. You examine ruler-subject relations through the perspective of those who endured the impacts of a long history of transformation of the region into a frontier, into also a resource frontier. Uh, can you speak a little bit about how this book took shape and what compelled you as a researcher with the kind of methods and roots that were part of this project? Thank you so much for asking me about my first book, Living with Oil and Coal. And this, this book started out as my doctoral um, research project when I was a PhD student um, at the Department of Anthropology at Stanford. And as I began to shape my project, it was never meant to be what you see as it is at the moment, you know, a book on extraction, on relationships. It started out as maybe a project on the hot bazaar, that's the weekly market. So I got a Wenergren uh, Foundation dissertation grant for this. And so if you just even Google and check it, it was really on the hot bazaars, the, the weekly markets along the foothills of, of this this region that we come from. But as I continued to uh, go back, I, I saw a lot of people in the market and majority of them actually came from the surrounding extractive um, resource regimes that were going on, including the tea plantations, you know, the, the sand mining along the riverbeds, the logging that were going on. And, but what really stood out actually was the, the oil rigs and the coal mines. And I got attracted to this project because for a long time, as you might be aware, I have a background in law. So before I did my anthropology, 
I was looking at violation of human rights as a young um, you know, human rights activist. I had a very brief stint at the Supreme Court and then the High Court in Guwahati. And so the, the human rights angle was always very strong in my own training, but the resource regime and to do with the violence and militarization really intersected when I began to go to the field with an ethnographic lens, with an anthropological lens. And certain things really stood out. One was the uh, quote unquote, the messiness of the place. And I have to tell you, my advisors were tired of this term messy, right? I had no other way to describe the places that I was looking at it. And it was really not neat categories that, you know, I could just put it in my writing. And the legal training teaches you to be very neat in a sense, right? Are you looking at evidence? Are you looking at facts? You know, what kind of complaints are you writing? And I was trained in the fact-finding writing activist uh, tradition that we have in India, which is absolutely wonderful that, you know, you take a pen and a paper and you write it. And really there are, there are uh, testimonies that go on there. Um, what I found out for, for my PhD fieldwork on extraction was that, you know, as Naga mining villages were destroying the mountains and polluting the, the rivers and, and the paddy fields, they were also earning a livelihood out of that. Right. How do you tell a story there? Like, do I go and tell them to stop it? Or do I go and begin to understand the depth and the layers of uh, resource extraction, of structural poverty, of violence, of people who are implicated there? Uh, I came away thinking about the global and at the same time, the local where the poor are often criminalized. Right? It's so easy to criminalize the poor, to say that what you're doing is wrong and stop. Um, and yet, if you see in the coal mines that, you know, it's the bag of coal they sell, Riju, not for anything, but to make sure that they have admission for the children, that they can buy medicine for the family, that they can buy a Christmas outfit for to attend the church village. I think you begin to see how is it that the rich and the privileged have always gotten away with the good stories, right? So it doesn't matter that Shell is destroying the entire Amazon, but it's saying that, hang on, we're gonna green, we're gonna greenwash the Amazon forest and they do a CSR, corporate social responsibility. And so it, I was pitted against this complexity of indigenous people really poor and what they were doing. Um, and at the same time, the rich oil uh, companies like Look at you know the the ONGC executives, the Oil India, you know um, uh, heads of the the heads of uh, you know the company where their children actually were all being educated in Ivy Leagues and across Europe, right? And we're hardcore environmentally spoke amazing, beautiful English, you know, came to the oil towns uh, to take the best jobs in India, of course, right, uh, and also overseas. But at the same, the children of the coal miners never even finished high school, forget high school. They were all school dropouts, mining. I'm sure those stories didn't come out well in the book. There were so many things that didn't go. But at the heart of what drew me to write this, living with oil and coal, were actually the complexities and the contradictions I was looking, uh, I was witnessing in the field. Um, and if there's something that captured the essence of the book is the, is the uh, conclusion, I would ask the readers to, the listeners of this podcast to go and pick up the book. I'm happy to discuss that further with you. But the conclusion and the picture that's there of the village school, I think that speaks a lot about the future, the carbon future that I call, right? The fantasies and what do we do with it?
So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I mean, I think we're going to get a little bit more into the into the complexities of this book. And so my second question is uh, about the relationship between borders and bordering practices and identities. And I think that's also very much a core uh, part of your book. The, the region uh, and its borders in particular have been sites of conflict um, and identity formation from as early as the 19th century with British colonization and bordering practices between the hills and the plains, between communities and genders, inform present-day ideas and understandings. So what are the multiple ways in which inhabitants of the Assam-Nagaland border that include both indigenous and migrant groups articulate their sense of belonging? That's a really good question. Thank you for, for uh, bringing the conversation to the border. Uh, as a feminist anthropologist, the border for me first starts on the body. Right. It's it's always the body. It's the color of our skin. It's how we look. You know, it's what what is it? What are the dispositions that we have as we move around? And in my own work, I found out that um the the women's bodies were actually the markers of, of the boundary in every sense. So the border and the footies, is, and especially the coal mining and also the oil rig towns is extremely patriarchal. And, and if you look at mining and logging any forest activity, it's very masculine, right? And so it's not only me as Dolly saying it. I think a lot of anthropologists and, and also scholars have said, uh, you know, anything's work, um, friction has, has this ethnographic vignette when I was reading as a graduate student about, about the loggers and the masculinity that they inhabit, right? Logging. And it was the same in the in the coal mines as well. Uh, one thing that really drew me towards towards the towards the notion of the border actually where the bodies of the women and there's a chapter I write, it's titled Difficult Loves. And I think a lot of students who, who read the book and, and also friends, they get back to me and they say, how did you come up with this chapter? And it was the story of a Naga woman who was married to a migrant worker in a coal mining village and how she was cast out of her community, right? So she's in a very violent, uh, domestic situation, and yet her inability to go back to family because, quote unquote, she married an outsider and she deserves what she's going through. I think that the 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 story, Riju, of women deserving what they get, is such a common one, right? So the bordering one is that of the spatial and the geographical one, but the other one is also the patriarchal bordering of the boundary that they set for us that if you cross this, if you cross and marry someone else, quote unquote, who's an outsider, quote unquote, who's outside of your clan, quote unquote, who's outside of your family approval. If you do this, quote unquote, of, you know, what a woman is not supposed to do, that's it, you're in trouble. And very, when you're in trouble, you know, we are not going to come and rescue you and save you. I think the second notion of the border here in my work also comes up as a way of longing. The longing. So one, the border, the gender, gendered border of the body that, you know, I follow a lot of feminist work and I write about that. The second one of the bordering was also along nationalist and uber, uber kind of, you know, narratives of longing and love. And so when I would go to the Naga villages in, in Nagaland, on the other side of the border, the upper elevations, uh, they would look at Assam and they would say, oh, look at them, the other side of the border. The state of Assam loves the people so much. 
right? Uh, you know, look at them, they have water, they have electricity. In Nagaland, we don't even have good roads. So that's love, they would say. So in a sense, the border also became a comparison of love, right? And I think I'm looking at a, maybe a very microcosm of the border in this frontier region. And that can be hyped up, you know, maybe like the United States and Mexico or even India, or Pakistan, you know, of course, like it comes up. And I think, in, in even towards the Assam side, you know, people in the uh, in the in the villages or like in the Brahmaputra Valley would look at the hills and they would say, "Wow, look at the Nagas! They're so fearless, right? Look at them! The, their their government teaches them to be so courageous and fearless. You know, when they come to a village, when they're angry and they come in jeeps to our villages, we're so scared to even look at them. You know, the the might and the courage they have." you know, to, to, to carry themselves as Nagas, as warriors, you know, oh, look at them. And so they would have this kind of fantasies and perceptions. And it was really about love across the border and not love in that sense of, you know, that emotional, that, uh, that romantic love, but really a, a sense of a ethnic, you know, uh, kind of an elevation, elevated idea of love. The third idea of the border that came to me uh, were also through relationships. Right. And, and if the first two bordering uh, Riju was about staking a claim, the third kind of bordering that I found was people who were always trying to cross over right, in relationships, through affection, through alliances, and, and, and also through the idea of loss. And how, how do we then make sense of that? One thing that I always say, I've worked in the Northeast and I've written about the Northeast region of India for, for more than 20 years now. And one thing I always say is that this is an exceptionally layered and complex region. And that to understand that, I think we have to live a lifetime, right? And, and yet a lifetime is not enough. So, so I'm still trying to figure out the relationships and the bordering. And the last point I would say is that that's why I really deeply look up to historians because I think they carry they carry the story of the region in a way which shapes our anthropological understandings, our literary and sociological understandings. So if there are historians listening to this podcast, I would definitely I think urge them to to uh, maybe guide us through understanding this and and you know look at look at new archives, <laughs> look at new archives and bring us those resources as well. Thank you. Thank you. That's uh, so kind of you to open up this conversation as uh, an offering to to historians. It's really lovely. There are so many conversations to be had across disciplines, which is why I was so excited to talk to you uh, today. Going further on the question of um, why history is relevant to understand the present, the other part of this is imagining futures. As much as history informs the present, the present um, informs the future. And how do we um, then think about uh, the futures of, um, you know, communities who are in so many ways confined to these bounded ideas of, of being in the frontier, um, being exploited, um, and you know, these sort of even stereotypes that that come up when we think about um, the region of the Northeast. I think as, as an anthropologist, I would say that, you know, the, the connection with, with the past, the present and the future are, are tied together in a sense that I would say it is almost an umbilical cord to, you know, one's, one's integrity 
and 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 the idea of community and what is it that it, that we aspire for and because he encouraged me to talk about the last chapter which is about carbon carbon futures and carbon fantasies and what is it that that lies ahead of us and it's not that i want to uh divert from the conversations uh, that I've written in my book, which which started out, the fieldwork started out around 2006-7, and the book came out in 2019. So for students who are listening to me and saying that, you know, oh, you know, books happen overnight, bad news. It takes long. And 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 so um, and so anyway. And so one thing that I wanted to connect with with your question about, you know, about history and what kind of sources we leave behind. I I would really want to bring in the Otting massacre of 2021 on uh, 4th December. That deeply disturbed me because it was in the district of Mon. Uh, young coal miners were killed. And just a few days ago, the, the, the report, which was sent by the Nagaland police to the government of India, to the federal authorities, uh, indicting the, the, the perpetrators, the, the Indian armed forces uh, where, where you know came with a response where the government of India said they are not they are not to be uh, prosecuted in any way. That is the power of impunity. So I feel that for all the work that we do as historians, as anthropologists, as sociologists in a region like the Northeast region of India, until and unless our work is connected to engagements that are happening on impunity, on such violations at such level where an entire people's history is not only disrespected, but continuously humiliated. I think we are at stake, right? Of the dangers of the scholarship that we produce if it is detached from the political and the social realities of who we are as people, as citizens in a country where there can be no justice. That's what the Indian state is telling us. That's what the Indian state is telling not only the, 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 the survivors of the Oting massacre, but also the Naga people and also every single uh, citizen who lives under such militarized occupation within the, the, you know, the, the territorial boundaries of India to say that you, know, you can be killed in this manner, you go to work and you're coming back and it's a week away from Christmas and yet you know, Christmas celebrations and yet this is what we're going to do to your families. So, so I feel that that is already an archive. That is already a violent archive of the Indian state. So in my work, whether it's to do with coal mining or it's to do with sexual violence, it's to do with militarization for once, I dream of a day when the government of India will hold itself accountable, will hold itself with integrity and courage and say that, you know, there has been deep violations that have been committed on, on citizens, on communities, on minorities. And this is something that we have to have a conversation. The second part about methods and sources and, and historical archives that I want to also point out in the backdrop of militarization and the violent history that we have in the region is to urge students, writers and authors that when they go into the archives, what is it they look at? Because we surely know for a fact that the archive is also categorized and categorization and themes are also political, are also a political project. And as a writer, when I write a book, there's no way that I'm going to look at my chapterization and themes and say that it doesn't matter the story I tell. I'm crafting it as an author. 
right? So if you look, if you talk to curators, and because because of my current work on 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 uh, repatriation and on on cultural heritage, I am talking a lot to to curators, to directors of museums, you know, which also goes back to the idea of archiving. So I think, Riju, that entire notion that we have that you know knowledge is sub objective, the archive is objective, needs to tear apart if we have to look at uh, work, if we have to look at our writing, and put it within the framework of justice, and put it put it within a framework of a dignified future that we are actually aspiring for. Thank you. Brilliantly said. Thanks for that, Dolly. Before we get into discussing your current project on repatriation, um, I, I want to uh, bring our conversation uh, back to how people navigate the terrain of resource exploitation, extraction, and violence, and at the same time, um, create a, you know agricultural and food practices that challenge the uh, profit-driven and corporate control over people's lives and livelihoods. So these are two sort of very uh, diverging ways of thinking about the lives of people. Can you expand on that? Please? You know that that I'm I'm still I'm still learning. And the food was always always a very important thing. I mean, you know, we eat to survive. But but throughout throughout my time as as a young human rights activist during my law school or even after that, the, the first thing that people would offer you when you reached a village or you know wherever you went to a friend's house to write a report would be food, right? And then, and then the idea of sharing was there. Uh, as I wrapped up my, my PhD uh, fieldwork, uh, surprisingly, the first piece I wrote post-fieldwork was, was, was a small essay for the American Anthropological Society newsletter. And it's called, it, it was titled, Tasty transgression. So you can you can Google it, and it's it's crazy that you know the first essay that I write on resource extraction was on food, and it was it was I think around oh gosh maybe thirteen or fourteen years ago, and so maybe the seed was already there. I would like to believe, and and so as I wrapped up the PhD and I looked at resource exploitation and violence, one of the things that I found out, which actually became my second book, was that a, there was a lot of out migration. From, from the mining villages, because as you know, coal mining is a seasonal work. And I'm sure it happens in Meghalaya, it's happening now in, in um, Arunachal Pradesh, it's happening you know, vast scale on a vast scale in Nagaland as well. So as, as young people were leaving the villages, one thing they were carrying along with them was, uh, along with memories, food. So in the middle of resource exploitation, extraction, violence, uh, food became both a place of remembering home, a place of um, belonging, and a place of seeking comfort. And Riju, from the small mining villages, when I extended my fieldwork and made it pan-India, I was going to metropolitan cities and working on that, which became my second book, Living, with, uh, Living the Land with Professor Ben Coulson, um, food became an important source. I, there's, a, there's a chapter in my second book, Living the Land, and it's called Dreams and Dessert. And, and it's, about, it's about migrants, young migrants who are working in the hospitality industry. You know, they serve high, high-end Italian food, you know, Japanese desserts, and yet they come back to the migrant houses in the suburbs, in the working class suburbs, in Mumbai, in Delhi, and they want to eat 
their food, right? They want to eat Naga food. They want to eat Okomiya food. They want to eat a Kasi meal. They want to eat, a, you know, nice, like, mete thali. And what is it that, that, that we begin to see? And so I think food then slowly came into my lens. And initially, for me, it was really the concept of pathos, suffering and sorrow that allowed me to look at food because, because you know, there's so much literature on celebration and food, but what I was looking at was really the idea of longing and not being able to go back home, right? I think for those of us who come from the Northeast to realize that we have, you know, we can go back to friends and families is also such a luxury and a privilege. There's so many who lose everything and are not able to go back. You know, how do we understand that? Seasons of Life, it's on YouTube, so check it out. Um, oh, yeah, and, so. and, and, and um, I think in June, I'm doing a, I'm doing a, a fermentation talk and workshop in, in Melbourne uh, at, a, at a shop called The Fermentary. And it's called uh, fermenting for justice. You know, looking at food, looking at you know, I'm, you know, my indigenous friends who will come in Melbourne, and 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 thinking through food in a in a deeper way. So I think I think yeah, I'm I'm really being able to um, explore some ideas. But but yeah, next time we should cook and eat together, Riju. This is an offering. <laughs> this would be lovely. I would love to kind of bring together different fermentation sort of methods that come from my ancestral region of Silhet and from the hills. And yeah, we we will definitely do that. That will be lovely. But uh, I mean, I think taking on from what you're saying, you know, the food creates certain cultural geographies as well uh, that uh, we've, you know, read historians talk about. Um, and uh, your very recently published um, co-authored book, Seeds and Food Sovereignty Experiences of the Eastern Himalayas, looks at uh, the lives of and livelihoods of people in the region. Um, can you briefly tell us a little bit about this book? Um, thank you so much for, for injecting this new book in the conversation. <laughs> um, I, yes, so I'm part of this multi-country um, research project with, with, my, with my team, and they consist of, uh, you know, Professor uh, Bank Carlson from uh, Stockholm University, uh, uh, Professor Sanjay Barbara from the Tata Institute of Social Sciences, Dr. Minal, Minal Tula from the Northeastern Social Research Center, Dr. Dikshitya Deka from the Northeastern Social Center, and, and then um, Joel Rodriguez, who is a researcher and the main guy here because he's the research coordinator who's pulling this entire research team together. And we're looking at, we're looking at food practices and agroecology um, in the Eastern Himalayas, which constitutes uh, four countries. So I think Bangladesh, Bhutan, uh, Nepal, and Northeast India. Because of COVID, we were really stuck and not able to do field work. So hoping that we are able to do some kind of justice. The Quickly, the book that we brought out was really some of the very preliminary findings that we were having in the field. And it's a really big field and we will absolutely not be able to do justice but with the depth and the richness uh, of, of the region that we're looking at. But we hoped that one thing we can do in this project uh, is to center community, right? So how is it that as researchers, we center community? And instead of getting our uh, research 
uh, drafts out and run into an international conference where at least there are going to be only four people in the room sitting after you travel 18 hours. Sorry, sorry to this international conferences, uh, but also, you know, where you spend $800 on your visa and then you wait for 16 hours in a transit, transit um, city. Is it worth it in the 21st century to do such kind of research where we run uh, to to, you know, to the global north to present our work or, or let's say to, you know, Delhi, Delhi, I use, I, I love to use Delhi as a metaphor of power and, you know, the, the hub of knowledge or, you know, for, for us from, from, from Shillong or from Tuli, you know, or from Pasigat to run to Delhi and to present to the Delhi scholars, look, this is what's happening in the Northeast. Now, nah, that's not what we wanted to do. We wanted to bring this book out, which centers community and then to, to put our, quote unquote findings and, 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 and ongoing conversations and reflections and take it back to community. Right. To, to, to make sure that the conversations we are having is presented to them in a sense where they see their own voices, where they see the collaborations and, and what kind of collaborations emerge. And we are very, we are, we are very um, also interested actually here to focus on um, practitioners and activists and voices that are coming from the field. So, so the book has several chapters and it has interviews uh, of our research from, from Bangladesh, you know, from, from Bhutan, from across Northeast India. Two of the researchers, Dikshita and Minal, went up to Nepal and we decided that if we have to look at food in Nepal, we wanted to look at it from the Sherpa community's perspective. Right, because because I think we have to understand that which are the communities and what stories have been erased in this entire South Asia food, uh, food culture and food narratives that's there. So I think even the even the story that you bring out about the Silet uh, heritage, food heritage, and how do we understand are such important parts of a region where we are constantly demonizing one another, where the history of having a shared past, you know, uh, an amazing affectionate present and aspiring to have a shared future if is often erased because, because our region is always studied and, and framed through a security prism, through a militarized prism. And, and that's, what, that's what the security state offers us to say that, you know, you can't have a community framework here. This is a security framework, you know, the neighbor is going to attack you quick, defend yourself. That's been kind of the reactive research frameworks that we have had. And so imagine if we had to put food and we had to bring it, food not as something fluffy. So many students that I speak to actually, more than half of them don't know how to cook. They have no idea where the food comes from. And I'm talking about the Northeastern region of India. So when we have become so good as Instagrammers, we're constantly taking photos, you know, we're constantly putting photos up. We have no clue where the bamboo shoot comes from. We have no clue how Akonya is made. We have no clue where the hell that Kong is making the jado from, right? So I think that is a kind of detachment, the rapture that we have had. And for me, I'm not gonna to go to San Francisco or New York and talk about food. I'm gonna to come to the Northeast and talk about food because if we don't know where our bamboo shoot is coming from, I think we are doomed. So, so, so that's where food and uh, seeds and food sovereignty book. It's lots of color. We wanted to make sure that we put the pictures out there, um, and it's open access. So please go download it, read, and 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 kind of like you know look at the pictures, the visuals. The visuals are also telling stories. 
Lovely, lovely. Finally, a deeply powerful and important project is the Return, Restore and Decolonize Initiative. Uh, it challenges the very ways in which we encounter knowledge about colonized and indigenous communities, um, the methods of colonial anthropology, anthropometry and race science are clearly exposed as very violent methods. And so it kind of connects to what you were saying just now about knowledge and what, what ways we need to kind of challenge the hegemony of Western um, uh, uh, knowledge about communities and people. Um, and I feel like uh, this project uncovers that historical violence and takes a crucial further step to confront history as a site of collective trauma. Um, thank you so much for bringing in the repatriation initiative of the Naga people. Um, and <clears throat> this is this is not, you know, I, I'm a very small speck, a, a, smaller than a pebble, my, my contribution in this initiative, because it 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 is something that the that the Naga communities, right, the elders, the younger voices, the cynics, the critics who don't, who are not at all seeing this as something that is helpful to, to, to address the current Naga, let's say, you know, crisis, whether it's to do with unemployment or that's, you know, it's, it has to do with the high rate of um, uh, students who are dropping out of education. So all their voices, uh, Riju, the, the ones who see this as hopeful, the ones who absolutely critique it to say that this is nonsense, both matter. Right. Both matter. And that is why the return, restore and decolonize initiative uh, that, you know, that is clearly, I think, carrying the, the dialogue on Naga repatriation of ancestral human remains from the Pitriverse Museum is very important. For me, I see myself as a Naga anthropologist who's really a very small footnote here, you know, and my role here is to serve is to be of service. If I, have, if I have received the education and if I have access to resources, now is the time in my lifetime right now when I'm able to move, I'm able to travel, I'm able to share my resources, my time to give it back to my community. And I welcome every kind of of introspection here from, from the Naga, Naga people. Uh, you know, people who say that this is nonsense, people who say this is meaningful, both voices are important. So I think the repatriation project, uh, which I thought was a project, was also an unlearning process. My elders told me that such community initiatives are never called projects, Dolly. And I said, thank you for correcting me. Right. So now this is really part of community service, understanding it. We're looking at uh, Riju around 6,466 Naga artifacts in the Pitriverse Museum at Oxford University. And these are both human and non-human remains to do with, you know, spear, to do with baskets. But here, out of that, we're actually looking at approximately around 213 human remains with a small number here, give and take, just ancestral Naga human remains, which were taken out of, taken off from the walls, uh, you know, which were being exhibited, I think till 2020 and put in boxes. So like many uh, indigenous human remains um, in that museum, the Naga human remains are now stored away in, in storage in an off uh, kind of museum uh, facility. So this is a conversation about how do we think about rest how do we think about return? And how do we think about a dignified, uh, a dignified kind of, you know, uh, 
an end that they can rest well. Um, the other thing that I think about, which is very important in this conversation, Riju, is the theme of healing that you bring, right? What is healing? Right? Is it that we go to a doctor, we pop in a paracetamol and we are healed? No, you know, life in itself, the body is full of suffering, right? Who knows how we, we will end our lives? Who knows, right? We might, we might have long-term illnesses or the end might, might be sudden. Um, but how do we then think of healing as long as we live in this body and within communities? I think for me, healing is that awareness that comes like the repatriation initiatives that we become part of. And we say, you know what? True, it's, it's like a commitment that you see, that, that you pronounce in goodness or in, you know, uh, in difficult times, we're going to be together. Uh, healing is that. The process of healing is first to understand the wound and the trauma. The process of healing is to first understand in the repatriation, something called decolonization. What the hell is that, right? To even understand decolonization, we have to understand colonization. To even understand colonization, we have to understand how is it that certain communities in back, going back in history were dehumanized. For me, colonization is really dehumanization. And if we are understanding healing in that context, then decolonization is the moment that we go back in, in the past, in history, to find a way of recognizing the moment of dehumanization and, and also to say, no, decolonization should be a way of humanizing one another. I, I think, sometimes I think about um, the healing part and the awareness part, and it is like switching a light in a dark room. If you go through and if you wake up to this powerful process of what healing means, it's so linked to justice that our lives will never be the same again as researchers, as people who engage uh, with, with a lot of suffering around, whether it's to do with injustice, to do with sexual violence, that if we're looking at healing, we're also looking at justice, we're also looking at community building, we're also looking at forgiveness, we're also looking at how do we live together, it is like a prison that opens up in our life. So I'm hoping that with healing, a very important word that you connect to the repatriation project, that this is a conversation that goes on. And repatriation, reparation, and also processes of healing never have an end. And so this is also one thing I had to unlearn as a researcher being part of the, this wonderful Naga initiative is that there is no goal. The goal, the goal is that as long as we are human beings and we inhabit the earth, you know, our, our misery and, and our, our incompleteness, our greed, our anger, our resentment is going to be constantly there, right? So then healing, then justice has to be also an ongoing process, right? So I think these are things that allowed me to really go deeper into the process of uh, the process of understanding healing and, 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 and link it with justice. The last thing that I want to also raise here is a very, I think, maybe perhaps a point that might uh, disturb some, some of the listeners, but, but with repatriation among the Naga people has also come about conversations about benevolent colonizers. 
because definitely it was the white people who gave us Christianity, right? And the Naga churches and the Naga Christian culture is so huge and so big. I'm sure that's the also case with, you know, other indigenous communities in the Northeast, like the Kasis, like the Mizos. And how do we begin to talk about this? So, so the, the notion of benevolent colonizer is very, very dominant one in, in Naga community. So when people like myself, Dolly and others are talking about decolonization, we also actually unearthing the trauma of colonization and the colonizers. And that's where some of the younger ones are very uncomfortable because they are saying that, oh, because the white people gave us religion, they gave us education. Look, why are they dissing all this, right? These are good things. Um, it's not about whether these are good or bad things, but I think that's also aligned with, with, with looking at the wounds, uh, with looking at the trauma, uh, with looking at the burning of, you know, the burning of artifacts, the burning of, 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 of our, of our uh, what do you call it? Yeah, of, of everything, quote, unquote, that was like unchristian, like of this entire change of, change of culture and practices. So, so the, the process of healing and awareness is going back to that historical trauma, the, the trauma of colonization, and, and, and looking at the wounds that are there. And this is not to say that, you know, you diss your religion, you diss your faith, but it is also to be deeply aware, right, of something that is really deeply global. And I'm saying this, you know, I'm giving you this podcast right here from the United States, here in New Haven, in Connecticut, in East Coast, where this country is deeply implicated in colonial violence, in settler colonial violence. So as we look at the process of decolonization, I want to tell the Naga listeners, I want to tell the students that open your eyes to look at the process of colonization and what colonization did to settler countries like the United States, like Canada, like, like Australia. And, and so it's just not enough to look at Naga Christianity. The people who supported Trump who supported violence, who, who killed African-Americans on the streets of New York, you know, are also Christians. So in a sense, I think I'm not trying to digress from the issue, but when we're looking at historical trauma and processes like repatriation and colonial violence and healing, I think we really, really need to come up. We, we are being called, let's say, you know, by a divine force. To, to step up, to look at to look at justice and to look at humanity from a really, really, I think, powerful place of, of cleansing ourselves, of also like walking in that light and in that faith with truth, dignity, and integrity. Thank you for that, Dolly. It's always such a pleasure and honor to listen to you. Um, I have so many thoughts and questions, and I can't wait for you to um, be here in the studio live with us sometime. Um, but uh, I just want to thank you again for joining us and sharing so much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be in this podcast and thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by Siddharth Pillay and Tushar Singh, students of Jindal School of Journalism and Communication. The podcast series is an initiative of the Center for Research in History in collaboration with JSJC Radio at OP Jindal Global University.